It's about time in a film nothing happened. What a brave choice a director made. What a, what a pioneer this guy is. Let's do nothing. Do you know anything about the art of film production? Well, I like to think so. Is this where I go to be a star? This is where you go to sacrifice, learn your craft, and work hard. Movies. Mm -hmm. Well, let's yeah. talk movies. Okay. Pick this up. Control sound. Roll camera. Speed. Dead. Walker. Welcome to Scene by Scene. This is a film discussion podcast where we break down story and technique from a filmmaker's and film lover's perspective. I'm Joe. And my name's Justin. In this episode, we'll be discussing Werner Herzog's Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Our discussion will be spoiler heavy, and you may find this discussion more engaging if you've seen the film before listening. Joe, no Herzog impression? I don't think I could do one if I tried. <laughs> <laughs> I could try to do a Klaus Kinski impersonation. <laughs> That's just like yelling? Yeah, just be yelling and screaming. This was my selection. I think we had mentioned this last episode, but obviously a film you haven't seen, but it was also partly inspired by the fact that Edward Yang had referenced it as a film that had gotten him back into filmmaking after having given it up. Yeah, so Joe, I am curious, because I actually don't even know, what is your experience with Herzog before this film? And also, is this your first experience with Klaus Kinski? Uh, so experience with Herzog is limited, I'll admit that. I've I've seen Grizzly Man, I've seen Nosferatu the Vampire. It's kind of interesting because there's a lot of his films that I'm like, didn't even realize it was Werner who made it, that I had seen that I wasn't necessarily fond of. I'm a little bit more familiar with something like Rescue Dawn. I'm also kind of familiar with him a little bit more as Herzog the actor and, I guess, in a way, the character. Of the filmmakers we've discussed on the podcast, his place in pop culture, not necessarily the person, but he reminds me a little bit of David Lynch, in which they're big personalities who've somehow infiltrated pop culture, even if you're not a huge movie buff. You basically mentioned that you could listen to Lynch talk and talk about film like all day. There is something as I watched Aguirre, The Wrath of God with commentary, I found a lot there regarding like his insightfulness and the way he looks and thinks about film, both in a traditional and untraditional sense. So you've seen Nosferatu. So you have seen a film with Klaus Kinski before. I guess it probably at the time didn't mean much to you. No. And admittedly, it's probably been over 10 or 15 years since I've even seen that one. So so I have seen this film before. I have seen many of his films, not all of them. Herzog is kind of a hero to me, even though I don't agree with everything in terms of his process. But there's enough there where, I mean, particularly with this idea of like going against Hollywood tradition and also this idea of just making your movie, go out and make your movie, despite all the challenges. I'll, I'll get to this later, but his masterclass I've watched, he believes if you want to be a filmmaker, save your money until you have $10,000. 
and then just go make your film, even if it's a crew of two people, is very much about just go do it, which I respect and respond to as well. What I do not like is the culture of complaint. Everybody is complaining, ah, the financiers are so stupid, they don't give me the money for my wonderful project. And it goes all the way even into some of the most successful Hollywood filmmakers. I do not name names now, but some of the biggest of them I've heard complaining how stupid the system was and wouldn't finance a project like this or that. It's, uh, it's unacceptable for me. You have to be able to be self-reliant. There's no excuse anymore that you don't do your film. No excuse. As DP on a feature film that you directed, and reflecting on the commentary, listening to how Herzog talks about film and that and other interviews, I definitely see also the influence he has had on you. I found it interesting because in earlier episodes, we talked about, and I want to say it was in the Park Chan-wook Handmaiden episode, where he talks about storyboarding. And now here we are talking about a filmmaker who's just completely on the opposite end, where it's like, no, I really don't storyboard. And with Aguirre, the Wrath of God, Herzog just goes and, you know, he he has the script, and but he's working to find something very natural and organic within that environment and sort of adjusting the film as they experience and encounter different situations. We'll, we'll eventually talk about all those things. While I really appreciated watching the film without the commentary, I found the commentary to just be incredibly insightful for filmmakers. Am Weihnachtstag des Jahres 1560 erreichten wir die letzte Passhöhe des Andengebirges und sahen zum ersten Mal in den gelobten Urwald hinab. Im Fluss kommt niemand lebend hinunter. Und ich sag dir, es geht doch. Von jetzt an geht es bergauf. Jetzt geht es bergab. So kann es nicht mehr weitergehen, Männer. Das Gelände hier ist so schwierig, dass wir einfach nicht mehr weiterkommen. Wir sind überall Indianer. Aguirre wagt nicht, sich jemals gegen die spanische Krone zu erheben. Wir sind hier nicht in Kastilien. Und ich sage, wir können unsere Aufgabe so nicht erfüllen. Und ich sage, wir erobern jetzt auf eigene Faust. Sei ruhig, Aguirre! Ist noch jemand da? Er macht so weiter, wie er angefangen hat. Du bist meine letzte Hoffnung. Du weißt, mein Kind, für das Wohl unseres Herrn war die Kirche immer auf der Seite der Starken. Werden wir über diesen ganzen Kontinent herrschen? Wir halten durch. Ich bin der Zorn Gottes. The film follows a group of Spanish conquistadors that embark on this exploration in search of El Dorado, the city of gold. After getting as far as they can on foot, the commander Pizarro orders a group to continue by raft. Pizarro puts 
Ursua in charge. Um, Aguirre is also in this group. After the river rises overnight and they lose their rafts, Ursua decides to rejoin the main group by foot and Aguirre uses this as an opportunity to lead a mutiny. With Aguirre in command, they build new rafts and they continue downriver in search of El Dorado. And then from there, people begin to die at the hands of the natives who are largely unseen. And I guess as supplies kind of run low, everybody begins to kind of lose a grip on reality, Aguirre being the worst of all. I think that's basically what happens. The film is experiential and somewhat episodic, not plot driven, and kind of leisurely at times, I would say. Is there anything sort of important that I missed to kind of understanding the story as we get started? I think Herzog's looking at a lot of different moral choices, and we're looking at themes of religion and a hypocrisy of of religion, of, of greed, of vanity. There's a lot going on here that I think Herzog does a really nice job of kind of blending all of these things together. Well, yeah, I think that's what's interesting about the film is that there are a lot of different sort of themes and ideas, but they're all happening at once. I think frequently when you think of like a film that's about all of these different things, you think of them kind of being separate. Maybe one idea is expressed through a subplot or one idea is expressed through this character. Different idea is expressed through this other character and they're kind of separated in that way. Here, I think he manages to like, like you said, blend these all together in a way that it's about all of these things all at once. The film feels very simple. In a way, feels like you could enjoy the movie as just an adventure movie, and you could maybe not take away all of these themes and ideas, but it's also all there if you're looking for it. One other thing I'd kind of add to this too is, while we mentioned like all the different themes, I actually did find this to be a lot more accessible than I maybe initially thought. Yeah, and I think that's maybe what I mean is it feels like it's, uh, in a lot of ways, it's borrowing genre movie conventions, the sort of like adventure film, the people in search of a treasure. The only thing that I think makes it maybe not as accessible as something like that is just the overall pace. It is a slower paced film with very little happening. I can imagine someone would maybe lose patience with it if they're not in tune with this sort of pace. And to that point, and kind of reflecting on my statement as well, the scale and the scope of like the action sequences when they do happen, they do feel, you know, relatively small by all accounts. So I, I do think that that could also be sort of a turnoff. We'll talk about the influence this film has on other films, as you mentioned, but I do think that films that have come after it with larger budgets kind of have the action scope. But I think it's important for fans of those films to kind of understand this was the seed that kind of sprouted that. Just a little background information to get started here. The script was written in two and a half days, which is far from conventional. Gary, the wrath of God is a, is a good example. Um, at a friend's house, I was poking in his books because he was uh, lovesick and was on the phone with his girlfriend 
who was leaving him all the time. And I, I just went through some, some books and I, I come across a book for adolescents, 13 year old boys or so about adventures and discoveries. And I read 15 lines about a man, Lope de Aguirre. And I walked out, I knew this was a film, but the same, the very next day, my small, tiny soccer team left for Italy and we were on the bus. Everybody was, was drunk. I mean, everybody. And they were chanting obscene songs and we had a ba barrels of beer on board in the bus. And I was typing at that time, a typewriter on my knees and uh, chanting, vomiting on my typewriter, uh, obscenities around me and we traveling. And I would write the screenplay and I would write even at that time I was goalkeeper, even during the halftime, uh, during halftime, 10, 15 minutes, I was furiously typing on. <clears throat> and this is a screenplay I finished in uh, two and a half days. Herzog did spend many weeks scouting the location. And in many ways, that is his biggest part of prepping for the film. It was shot in 1971, released in 1972, but didn't get a release in America until 1977. When asked about it, Herzog said they shot for five weeks, editing was about four weeks, shot on a budget of 360,000 with a crew of eight people. Many of the shots were photographed only once, going back to potentially how difficult it was to capture them, but also how small a $360,000 budget is for a film of the size and scope. Very little to no rehearsing. I've always uh, assembled my actors on the set, and that's where I start to rehearse. And things are completely fresh for everyone. Completely. And uh, it's good that I do it that way, because in my films, my actors are always lively. Uh, when they are over-rehearsed, uh, they lose the spark. It happens quite often. I also uh, notice that when you do too many takes of the same uh, dialogue portion, um, you come to a point where from, from which on it all sinks down. It's slowly, slowly, slowly getting more and more boring and, and lifeless no dialogue in the script or very little dialogue in the script a lot of it was improvised or written by herzog himself as they were making it so of course i i hear that sometimes uh, a dialogue spoken sounds like paper and you better rewrite it on the spot and you better do not interrupt shooting longer than 30 seconds you see for, you can write 10 lines of dialogue in 30 seconds you better deliver instantly and that brings life and, and cohesion into a shoot and cohesion into a story. Like you talked about earlier, no storyboarding. I do not use a storyboard. I think it's an instrument of the cowards. You need it when you do a, a film with the digital effects and part of the screen has to be a live action and the other part of the screen has to be ancient Rome, for example. And yes, you have to know exactly about positioning and moving, then it's fine. If I had had, uh, let's say, storyboards for most of my films, it would have been lifeless days of shooting and uh, allowing real um, intense 
uh, life pura vida, as uh, Mexicans say, not purity of life, but the, the, the full scope of life, the exuberance of life into the day of shooting, into also the day of editing. Uh, your films will become stale very quickly. I'm the only completely unprepared on the set. I come with the actors in uh, makeup or, or costume or not, and I start to stage the scene with them and do the basic choreography. And with a cinematographer, I decide, uh, normally I try to do it in one single shot, of course, and continuity always comes to me and they ask me, uh, in how many shots are you going to dissolve this sequence? And I say, how do I know? I cannot tell you. Uh, I work myself into it and I work myself into a, a sort of high intensity um, sort of, of vision and, and working in poetic frenzy. Although I'm very calm and I say at least it will be one shot and sometimes I try to do one single shot uh, where the camera actually weaves in and goes to some detail and moves back and the camera uh, is, is somehow doing a choreography in the middle of everyone. Of course, then I see, uh, no, you cannot, it's a too long a way until I reach this point and I look at the wristwatch of someone, you better cut the fastest movement or the fastest pan is a cut in such a case, and I start to, to organize cuts, but I come unprepared. And uh, it, keeps the, uh, it keeps the team on edge, and it keeps the, the actors on edge. They don't know exactly uh, what's coming at them. Yes, they know, let's try to do it in one single shot. You better know your dialogue, you better know your movements, you better know what we are doing here. The other big thing I think is worth noting here is it was filmed in English and then dubbed in German for its final release. Of course, there is also an English dub. When they were shooting, they spoke English because it's the one language that the multinational, multi-language speaking cast could use to communicate. And this is pretty common in multinational cast films, especially in this period. Italy is an example. They post-dubbed everything and everything recorded on set was just for reference. Speaking from a American perspective, this being a foreign film, the idea that this entire film is ADR'd or dubbed may feel weird to an American audience, but given its European origins, isn't uncommon at that time. Very often I have had the feeling this whole uh, three-act structure that is being taught in film schools is kind of ridiculous. What is uh, three acts in Agari? And, and that the leading character from a certain point at the end has to change and has to be a different man. No, not so. <laughs> not in Agheri. Agheri is, is bad and he's only worse at the end. So um, it doesn't function with me like that. Sometimes there may be something like five or six acts in a film that I have made. Uh, I think it's brainless. It's really brainless to structure yourself and it uh, it uh, very often is a signature of mediocre films that become very, very predictable. And I don't want to make that kind of films. I'm thinking of the way Justin would say this to me if we were just in person and not doing a podcast. 
Uh, Justin would say, well, I think you're focused on the wrong thing, Joe. But I think that there is a little bit counterintuitive to what he's saying, or maybe a degree of hypocrisy, maybe. Because he comments on how, like, characters in, like, traditional three-act structures, like, characters need to change. And he references Aguirre's hasn't changed, but he's kind of gotten worse. But that is still, to me, a change. I get what he's saying, and I, I totally agree with, like, the overall message and concept. I do feel like there is still a change that occurs in him. I get what you're saying. I think it's possible that he didn't actually communicate what he was trying to say all that well. What he was trying to say is that, and we've had this conversation before too, this idea that the traditional screenplay, the screenplay valued by Hollywood, maybe a character is really selfish or something. And then he goes on this journey through the film and he learns that the way he's been living his life is hurting other people and also hurting him by destroying any sort of happiness or something he may have had. And so he changes and he's redeemed. And that being what, from his perspective, Hollywood values is that redemptive change. And maybe he's less talking about the fact that Aguirre does change and he gets worse. And to be clear, I personally am more of a fan of, you know, if there is a change, it's not a great change. I mean, I don't think every character needs that big redemptive arc, but I I do think that there is power to change. Admittedly, one of the things that I kind of appreciated about this film was that Aguirre isn't a better person at the end and that he sticks to his fool's errand and his greed all the way throughout. What I like is is that this could be a story in which you see Aguirre start out as this level-headed, sort of in-control person. Maybe he's ambitious, and that throughout the film you see him slowly go mad. But I don't think that's what it is. I think he starts out a little crazy. Yes. And maybe that comes from casting Klaus Kinski. When you cast him and you see that look in his eyes, you can't help but just feel like this guy is starting out crazy. So I like that it's not a guy going crazy. It's a guy that starts out crazy and gets worse, I guess, as film goes. I agree with that 100%. I I think that the change that we see in Nagire is that we go from seeing him being maybe a little bit more scheming, and, and not externally, but in the shots that we have of him, it feels like he's kind of processing and he's sort of like plotting until like the mutiny happens. And even at the mutiny, you expect Aguirre to name himself the new ruler, but he doesn't. So he's very measured until, you know, the end where he's more overtly sinister and and more overtly treacherous. There has to be an urgency in, in you and then you can, that's the way you should write and that's the way I actually film, I, I shoot a film like this, but the urgency uh, makes me act very quickly. You leave everything that's not important, you leave it out, you just go for, for the very, very central things. And, and normally I do not write more than five days because there's an urgency and I see an entire film in front of me. I wait until I write, sometimes these little elements are coming together. Sometimes I write only single words or I write 
what Churchill shouted across the aisle. Even if it ends up in the film or not, doesn't matter. I'm somebody who never corrects a single word. I write it down and, and I, I try to be disciplined that I don't even need to um, erase a single word or, or restructure a sentence. And, and this gives an urgency and also a precision. There's a precision which you do not reach otherwise if you brood over a screenplay for many months. It gives a very intense feeling of uh, how, I, how I, I sense the film. And this kind of sense, um, sensing the film, has to translate to the cinematographer. It has to translate to the person who creates the music. It has to translate to the actor. Um, and, uh, and when you have that, when a screenplay creates that, if, if a film, an entire film becomes visible, then you've got a screenplay. And I don't care how many pages it is. I don't care whether it's three acts, five acts, or no act at all. I think his screenwriting process is unique in the sense that, I mean, for him, I guess it truly is like a blueprint. I mean, although he does talk about writing in prose or something, so it maybe is more enjoyable to read than a standard screenplay, but it's not about the dialogue. It's not about reaching a certain page length. It's about, I guess, creating a mood and a feeling that anybody who reads it immediately gets. You couldn't sell that as a screenplay in Hollywood. But given the way he's working, I think that works really well for him. Also, this idea that he's not rewriting. The first draft has everything he needs. The thing that stands out to me is just the disciplined nature of him and his screenwriting. I think it's a little unconventional. I think a lot of what he does is unconventional. Really just giving yourself five days to write. I mean, in theory, I would love that. From my own experience... I have had moments while working on a screenplay where now I have never written a screenplay in five days and I also do rewrite, but there has been moments where during the rewriting process, I feel like certain elements have gotten worse. There is sometimes overworking a screenplay can actually have a negative effect. And I think I've experienced that firsthand he sees that and he's developed a way to, I guess, completely avoid that. I mean, the counter to that that I would also offer is trying to perfect it in that first draft. And I'll use the term perfected in the first draft loosely here. That's something and a pitfall that I run into when I write a screenplay is I do pour over trying to get it so right the first time when I do that. And when that happens, I end up just getting stuck. Yeah. By doing that, you can drive yourself mad. I have, you know, a folder of incomplete screenplays that I've just lost the patience to perfect in its first outing. Well, I think this also relates to how you work on set. I mean, if you're someone, and this goes back to the fact that, you know, he's anti storyboard because he's someone who believes in spontaneity on set and this idea of discovering it and rewriting and even incorporating real life things that happen to the production into the script while you're making or while you're shooting the film. So if that's the way you like to operate while you're shooting, maybe it doesn't matter that it's perfect on the page because you know it's going to change anyway. Turning to the actual structure of the film, the film is 
sort of episodic. It's sort of structured almost like diary entries with voiceover narration. And it's sort of inspired by the real diaries of missionary Cavajo, but the actual entries are invented by Herzog, a real person, but he never actually went on these adventures. So using that as a starting point, one segment, which maybe represents a day in the voiceover narration, he gives dates, January 15th. 20. Januar. Die Berge sind jetzt hinter uns und flaches Land hat begonnen. Das Dach, das uns Agere bauen ließ, ist ein guter Schutz gegen die stechende Sonne. And then we see what happens, and then there's a distinct end, and then we're off on to the next day where this other thing happens. I think that works really well for the film in terms of conveying this, you know, multi-month exploration through the jungle on the river, this whole journey by conveying that sort of in an hour and a half. You know, you talked about the journal entries, Herzog talking about kind of the inspiration, finding this uh, story about Aguirre. There's also excerpts from a letter that Aguirre wrote to King Philip that parts of that are actually featured in the film after Aguirre plots that mutiny. I want to take this back to the story creation process, how he just borrowed from little different historical elements. It was never a situation where he was handcuffed to them, maybe due in part because there was so limited information or resources about some of these people. I think that's what is interesting about Herzog, and there are other filmmakers like him. You know, there might be like the history buffs out there who are like, well, this isn't how it happened. But a filmmaker like Herzog is using sort of these little pieces of the story or elements inspired by real life to shed light on this sort of greater truth about humanity. In that way, it is true, even if it's not accurate to history. And that's what I think takes a film from being, I guess, just documentary or a biopic to art. What I love about this film is the non-traditional narrative elements of it. It is the lack of plot and it is the lack of character change where the character journey isn't defined by change. Like I said earlier, I feel like Aguirre starts out sort of mad. He's not driven mad by this journey. There is corruption on display here. It's not about seeing how these people are corrupted. These people are already corrupt and we're just, you know, witnessing it take place. You know, maybe traditionally we would want to know why these characters are the way they are or how they became the way they are. And those are the kind of things that I don't think are important to Herzog or important to this film. There is the moment where Inez goes to the monk and she's kind of asking for help when it comes to Ursua after the mutiny has occurred. In a way, she's kind of rejected and the monk instead of doing something holy or proper that you would expect from that character basically kind of turns her away and is focused on his own self-interest that's that moment where i'm like okay now i really truly understand this is not going to be like a traditional conventional narrative you talked about the missionary or the monk 
I think he's an interesting character too because he's frequently reminding people that the most important thing is spreading the word of God to the natives, but at the same time gets very excited about the gold whenever it's mentioned. When the two natives canoe up to their raft, the one native has the gold necklace. He's the one who says, ask him where he got the gold. So there's an example of this character who's supposed to represent. Now, I don't necessarily think what they're doing is positive. Trying to convert these natives to Christianity, I don't think is a positive thing. But he claims to have these noble goals, these goals that go beyond a desire for gold and money. It becomes very clear that that's not true. But you don't see that journey. This is just who the character is from the beginning. And you see it come out here and there throughout the film. Do you have something to add? You brought up the moment where they actually have an initial non-hostile interaction with the natives. So you mentioned he's the one that asked where they got the gold. He hands the Bible and he said it's the word of God. And the native lifts it up to his ear and says like it doesn't speak. And ultimately this results in the two natives being killed. There's two things that I really want to touch on as this missionary, as this representative of the church, and how they're supposed to bring religion and the word of God to these natives, and at the first sign of question or disbelief, the result is to refer to those characters as blasphemous, and they're going to murder them. Well, yes, I do know and understand that did happen. I do find there to be a, a sense of irony to that. The second thing that I want to bring up, there's so much that occurs in this film with these characters and this collection of characters. Everything that they're doing is the wrong decision. The two natives who, by all accounts, seemed interested in, in helping. Here is a lifeline for the people on the raft. And instead of understanding their situation, their predicament, their hubris, their ego, it's all overcoming everything else. I mean, they're really there for monetary gain. I mean, the whole point of this journey is to find El Dorado. But if you take the idea of the missionary and I guess the whole group on face value, it really comes down to that they think they're there to rescue the natives, to save the natives from their savage ways. They couldn't possibly imagine that the natives actually have something to offer. These two come to them and it could have been a way for them to change the course of this journey from this self-destructive destination to maybe a source of food, a source of information. But I don't think they can comprehend that these people even have anything to offer them. They view them as so sort of beneath who they are. And as a result, they make a decision that ultimately, I think, dooms them even more although they were already headed in that direction. From the missionary's perspective, just the idea that this missionary knows what's best for them. This idea that I'm going to convert these people to Christianity, whether they consent or not, and if they prove to be too difficult to handle, we'll just kill them. Clearly, that's comes from the self-inflated view of who they are and what they represent in I guess, the world as a whole. I mean, another example of this is as they're slowly traveling down the river, Guzman, 
the guy who Aguirre has sort of appointed as emperor of El Dorado. He's looking at the map and he's like, okay, this is now ours. This is now ours. We now own six times what Spain, the idea that just by traveling down the river, as soon as they reach that point, that land now belongs to them. I mean, these things happened. Maybe not in the way it's depicted in the film, but this is the stuff that is inspired by real life. And I think Herzog does a really good job of showing how ridiculous it really is. I just also wanted to add, this kind of ties back to this non-traditional narrative, is this idea of almost like very little conflict or the conflict resolves itself very quickly. The two examples I have, the big moment is Aguirre leads a mutiny. You can kind of see from Aguirre and from Kinski's performance that he's got something planned. But in terms of like the actual conflict, it sort of just happens and then it's sort of over instantly. He confronts him. The shot is actually on Ursua and then a gun goes off and he's shot and he goes down. And, you know, there's a couple more gunshots as people on Ursua's side sort of stand up and try to stop it from happening. But it's over in an instant. Also, in terms of the way it's photographed, it's not made into a big cinematic sequence. It's not an action scene. It's very simple and over very quickly. Ursula doesn't die. He's sort of around for, I don't know, another half hour of the film, maybe. But there's no real conflict between the two of them from that point on. But he's constantly treated by Aguirre as this this major threat. And he's just laying there the entire time. And maybe that says something about Aguirre's character, whether that's a, a paranoia or whether that's a insecurity in which he is so threatened by someone who can't even stand up. We never see any sign that he's a threat. And the other example is the natives who are periodically killing people on the raft with arrows. They go almost entirely unseen. There's a few moments where you see them sort of standing on the bank of the river. But even in those moments where they're shown, they're kind of just standing there. They're not actively engaged in combat or trying to harm or kill them in those moments. But then when people actually do get arrowed, the blow darts or whatever it is, and people die, we never see them. We never see that threat. We sort of see the aftermath, I guess. In terms of creating conflict, it doesn't really create conflict. So in this way, it feels anti-traditional screenplay in that way as well. I do think Herzog's films are frequently comedic. It's a very distinct sort of type of humor. I think it works in some films and it doesn't work in other films. I don't like it in this film. I'll throw out a couple examples. I think I might know one. Okay. Is it the arrow? Long arrows are getting fashionable. Yes. Yeah, that's one of them. But also after they discover the guy with the dart in his neck, the one guy looks at it and he says, look how short that arrow is. It must belong to a dwarf. Mm. The decapitation sequence Part of it that I'm referencing here is the guy's counting. He's counting to 10. He gets to 9. Six, seven, eight, nine. And then he gets decapitated. We whip pan over to his head. 
which has landed in the brush, and the actor says 10. Then there's things like uh, meat is floating by. They ask what the natives are shouting as they're floating by, and he's like, they're saying meat is floating by. This stuff happens after they're getting to this point where they're starting to, I think, lose it a little bit, and they're starting to hallucinate and all these things. But the fact that that first half doesn't really have any of these moments, and the second half has so many, that maybe this comedy is playing into the surreal sort of fever dream quality that sort of develops as the film progresses. It just doesn't work for me personally. And I like the surreal elements. I like the boat and the tree. Yeah, I like that. I like the absurd elements, the long take of the guy playing the pan flute as Aguirre just stands there and watches him. These sort of elements that feel maybe a little bit absurd or kind of out of place in a way, but they feel like they fit to me. I like those elements, but just those very blatant jokes through dialogue don't really work for me. Um, Did you have any thoughts on that? I don't think I was necessarily put off by those things. I I think that there are moments where it really just, and I mentioned the one for me that really stood out like a sore thumb, the long arrows are becoming fashionable. The meat is floating by. To me, I think I was able to justify that one because the natives do view them as food. You know, that's all that they are to them. So I think that the absurd elements to your point, I think that did work. For me, at least, the absurd elements that you reference worked because of that fever dream, losing your sanity. I think I'm more forgiving of these elements than you are. There are films that are Herzog films that engage in this same sort of humor like this. It does work for me. This one just felt a little out of place, but I can understand that's a very subjective thing. I think it's maybe worth at least acknowledging and discussing, and maybe we'll have slightly different opinions on this, the depiction of the natives and whether the natives are being exploited on screen and whether as a production they're being exploited in the making of the film as well. For me, the depiction is complicated because I don't think they're necessarily depicted as savages who are a danger to the white people in the way that you would frequently see. It's better than it could be. And obviously, Aguirre and the Spanish conquistadors are the bad ones, even though they, I mean, they do discuss the the idea that the natives are cannibals and do potentially view them as meat. It is clear that it's Aguirre and his group that are the bad ones. We do have two very peaceful natives canoe up to their raft. And the reason that that leads to violence is not because of the natives, it's because of the Spanish. But I don't think it's obviously as nuanced or as maybe accurate as it could be. But so here's the thing. A film that reminds me of Aguirre is Cannibal Holocaust. That's what Cannibal Holocaust does well, is it it does show that the white people are the problem, not the natives. So that's why I think that one is more successful than than everything that came after it. But I do see a lot of similarities. It's all about just traveling down the river. And they went and they go to these places. They go to South America or they go to the Philippines and they shoot in the jungle and they use the indigenous people of these areas as actors or extras. 
you know, it's like these crews actually out in the jungle doing it for real. And that's how they're very similar to me. And obviously this film does it much better than any of those films. That's the depiction element. Then it comes to the exploitation. And I think this is more complicated because I do think Herzog cares about these people. I don't think he's coming in here to use them. I think he does get to know them. I think he does try to be respectful of their traditions and their customs. And I don't necessarily think that's true of all white filmmakers who come into these places and set up camp and then shoot and then just abandon it. And it reminds me, I think it's worth referencing. So there's a Samuel Fuller documentary with um, Jim Jarmusch where they talking about this film that Samuel Fuller tried to set up and never got made called Tigerero. He goes back to this village and they show him like interacting with the natives there and they show that he has respect for these people and he cares about these people. You know, like he remembers it's been many years since when he was trying to set up the film and he was visiting these locations and when they shot this documentary and he talks about how he remembers people clearly he has some sort of respect that he remembers specific people that he interacted with but there's still the question of when a film crew comes into a location and even if they're paying these indigenous people to take part in the filming of this film i think there's a conversation to be had of in the very nature of what's happening is it exploitation you talk about it from the native's perspective and i think that's incredibly fair because you know that's labor that's talent that's you know crew and herzog talks about utilizing people he just found in like the villages as actors and the person who was playing the flutes that was just a mentally challenged person that he found and that he really just took to made him this part of the film no matter how careful a filmmaker is when they go into an environment now that could be you know the impact left on the people but also the environment there was the danny boyle situation with the beach where the production of that film basically destroyed that whole area and had a a pretty significant impact on the people that lived there when he did slumdog he wanted to keep it as little impact on on the environment as possible but it's just in this art and in this craft no matter how careful i think you try to be and no matter how much you try not to quote unquote like exploit a group the fact of the matter is you're still having an impact there and you brought up the pan flute player who herzog has talked about and has said was mentally challenged that's a case in where it's like i do think herzog had compassion for this person and liked this person but does this person really understand especially in this situation what herzog is doing and you know the idea of photographing someone without them maybe understanding what it's for or how it's going to be used what he does with this character is respectful i don't think he's disrespectful in his depiction of this man but it's still i think there is an element of exploitation just because the person doesn't necessarily understand what he's I assume, agreed to do. This person who Herzog had talked about basically being kind of a beggar and 
how does one go back to their normal traditional being after something like this? Because, you know, if he's on the set, food was still hard to come by for the crew, but this person was fed by all accounts and, you know, supported. And so after that production's wrapped, that crew leaves, you know, what is the quality of their life after? I do really respect the fact that Herzog tried to utilize, as far as like cast and crew, the natives, residents of a certain area, because I I do think that it can have a positive impact. And I think that it captures, in this case, a very natural and organic element. And I appreciate that because I I think it lends itself to the film. But to your point, I do think that there are repercussions and consequences to that. With that, maybe we can start talking about maybe some of the filmmaking elements, the technique, the process of actually making this film. And it's not that I'm trying to to give it a certain aesthetical look. That is actually sometimes my friction with uh, cinematographers who want to incorporate aesthetics. They want to put in aesthetics. And I say, no, aesthetics is a natural concomitant of what we are doing. Let it seep in. You see, when you are when you are writing something in longhand, like like in this in this in these logbooks, or in my diaries in subminiaturized uh, handwriting, I never think about stylizing my longhand. I couldn't write a proper sentence anymore. It would be awful if you write a love letter today. Nobody writes a letter anymore in longhand. You better do a tweet or something, go on Facebook and declare your love. Um, but if you look out for style in your handwriting, uh, you do not write a good text anymore. I'm fairly convinced of that. And so uh, I have my battles. This looks too kid, too much like organized aesthetics. And when you are going into that, you're always close to kitsch. It always feels like artsy-fartsy to me. And I try to avoid it and, and I battle it back. The, the look, the aesthetical look of a film, I try to battle back from day one during my shoots. And the strange thing is, all my films have very clear aesthetics. How these aesthetics seeped into the film or in, into practically all my films, I do not know. And best of all, I don't even care. There's a filmmaker style, and then there's doing things to be stylistic. And even in his director's commentary, he talks a little bit about shooting things a certain way. I don't think he refers to them as stylistic. I think he may refer to them another way. He kind of acknowledges that a lot of the film has like a documentary kind of feel or style, but then there's moments, I think he always refers to them as like still lifes. They're very sort of like still, static, staged sort of compositions. His language is this mix of documentary and still life. There's a moment that immediately kind of comes to my mind. It's the shot where 
Inez and Aguirre's daughter are, it's basically kind of like a, a medium wide, and they're kind of looking at the mutiny and the, the group of men that have sort of like encircled at that point. I think it's blocked really well, and I, I really appreciated the composition of those shots, but they did feel kind of like stylistic choices. He has moments that are quote-unquote stylistic, and I do think he has a signature style. I would relate it back to our discussion of Lynch, and I think I made a, a big deal about Lynch being someone who works from his intuition, and something that in the moment feels right is right because he has faith in his intuition. And I feel like that's sort of, in a way, what Herzog is also kind of saying or practicing in his process of making films. He scouts locations, but he shows up on set without storyboards and kind of finds the shots in real time or while shooting. And so it's all about just what feels right. It's not about pre-planned style. And this is why I find it interesting, is we now are living in a world where films a lot of the time have become all about stylistics and films are sort of live or die by their cinematography and sort of how interestingly they're shot. I always make the argument that that's not what makes a good film. And so even if this seems to be maybe slightly a contradiction or doesn't necessarily seem to perfectly translate to what you see in his films, it is a distinct difference from what's being practiced in Hollywood or in other films. Yes, I will agree with that. You don't have a lot of, and part of it is just they didn't have the capability, but you don't have a lot of like following shots or a lot of like tracking shots or there's a lot of like fixed camera and the scene just kind of takes place in the context of the frame. It also ties to this documentary aesthetic in the sense that it's all handheld and it's all almost like finding little moments in a scene. And whether it's like Herzog tapping the camera operator on the shoulder and saying, shoot this, shoot this, or it's the camera operator DP finding those moments on his own. Thomas Melch, uh, who did Signs of Life in Dagiri, uh, I saw him doing a documentary on German elections. And after election night, there's the three main party leaders are sitting at one table pretending to be so much uh, liking each other so much for sharing the basic same values. And, and it's all phony, completely and utterly phony. And Mauch all of a sudden spots something and, and tilts and goes under the table. And under the table, you see the knees of the three men. The one on one side is turned like this away. The other one, his knees turned. So they sit completely different to the phony sort of concordance of hearts and agreeing on, on basic values. And, and he's the one who sees it. And I said, that's my man. That's what it feels like. It's like having the trust that you just let it happen. What are we depicting? We're depicting a group of people rafting down the Amazon River. And so that's what you do. You have a bunch of people on a raft going down the Amazon River. So it's almost documentary in that way. You have a bunch of people descending a mountain. Well, you have them descending a real mountain. They're just doing that thing. The actors, in a way, are just reacting to the situation that Herzog has set up. And then the camera is just 
capturing these people actually doing this thing. Um, in that way, it's like documentary. Now we're part of the action, but it's almost just like we're going to kind of just stand back and just capture whatever's happening. I think of that opening where they're descending the mountains. The path is narrow and it's slippery. So it looks dangerous to traverse that path. You know, that's the content of the film. But how do you shoot that? If you're making a, you know, a film set in the Peruvian jungle, you go to the Peruvian jungle and do it. You put them on that mountain and you have them walk down that path. The actors are essentially doing what the characters are doing. And then it's a question of like, well, if that's the case, are they really acting or are they just behaving or reacting to this scenario that Herzog has set up? And then as a cinematographer, are you shooting a movie or are you just capturing people walking down a, you know, a mountain path? That's what gives it this real sort of tangible feel. Within the film, there's like moments where things kind of change. And, you know, I think we've kind of experimented with this in our own filmmaking. But, you know, I think a lot more of the the static and the lack of movement occurs more so prior to the mutiny. There's some movement there, but it's generally a little bit more still there. Post-mutiny, there's a little bit more movement, but I do feel like it generally is done in a way that's kind of confusing. Maybe not confusing, but giving the sense of almost being directionless. Not directionless from like a director's perspective, but not knowing where things are going. I do not shoot coverage. Uh, that's one of the things on my set. One camera and I shoot a scene three, four, five times and that's it. If it doesn't function after five times, there's something wrong with a dialogue or with a scene and you better quickly rewrite something. And it happened in New Orleans with uh, Nicolas Cage. My crew was nervous uh, after the first day of shooting, which ended at 3.30 p.m. instead of 6 or 7, without going into overtime. And, and somebody said in the crew, yeah, but coverage, coverage, uh, aren't you shooting coverage? And I ignored it. And next day again, coverage, why is coverage? I finished at 2 p.m. I had it all in the can. And I didn't know, know what coverage meant. I know what coverage means in my um, uh, car policy, in my insurance policy. So, and I took my assistant director to the side and I asked coverage, what do they mean? I know what coverage is in my insurance policy. And he said, no, there's a shot from this angle and the ultra close shot, only the eyes in the shot from above, there's actually a camera up here, which I think is pretty useless and, uh, and you shouldn't uh, shoot with too many different angles anyway. So this would be coverage, for example. <laughs> and uh, on the third day, coverage, coverage all over the set again. Nicolas Cage says, give me an apple box, crew together. He stepped on an apple box and he said, everybody listen for a moment. He said, Werner is not shooting cover coverage. Finally, I'm working with a director who knows what he's doing. So uh, that was a wonderful moment for me. And uh, I must say, I do shoot coverage, but very little. Yes, I do. Uh, in particular, in dialogue scenes, I have a reverse shot and I do things like that. Uh, but not all the craze that you see on a, on a Hollywood set, where they have the scene 
the sequence in the can in four or five hours, and then the next eight hours, and another three hours, overtime, overtime, they spend in coverage that will never end up on the screen. So you have to learn what do you need for the screen. I feel like this is something that maybe you and I have historically had differing opinions on. It's never been like an argument, but you don't necessarily, it's not that you don't believe in coverage. It is a thing you do accept exists. You're not so inclined that you need to get coverage of everything. Like if we can cover something in a two shot, that's good enough. Which is interesting because of the two of us, you're the editor. It's interesting to me that the editor doesn't want the ability to cut around things. And where I've kind of come from and the people I've worked with, the situations I've been in, has been more of a, they just want all that coverage. And they want that coverage because they're going to just try to cut around everything. Is this a fair observation of the two of us? Yeah, that's fair. Okay. And I would I would really push the camera and the actors along from from uh, sequence to sequence to sequence and try in order to save time, shoot the whole sequence in one single shot, move with them, do it. And it gives the film a certain urgency and a certain cohesion. Of course, there are cuts and of course, there are different camera angles and so, but the tendency was shoot it uh, condensed, leave everything that's not important left and right away. The same way I write a screenplay. I do feel like I've kind of come around a little bit of like, well, why do we need that? And where I'm kind of going with this is because it is sort of like the unconventional filmmaking element where it's like, we don't see these things being done. We're both, admittedly, I think we're both fans of, let's see this in a wide or a master or a two shot. You know, we don't need constantly to be cutting into close-ups. Herzog has this like great moment in Aguirre where he's shooting like behind Inez and it's after or as Ursula is being taken to be hanged. It's like her emotional breakdown. And it's that moment where her protection, her hope sort of is lost. And they don't cut into like, traditionally you would see the actor's face and you'd see all of that emotion. And Herzog even mentions it in the commentary, but just the body language and and how Inez sits and, and moves and how we get all of that from behind her. Just to kind of build on what you said, that's a moment where it's there's no cutting. It's just one shot because that's all you need. But then also to your point, she's facing away from camera. So we never even see her face and everything that that character is experiencing is expressed through body language. So it's untraditional in two ways. I can imagine a world in which you get the wide to establish she's sitting on the bank of the river. And then we cut into the close-up to actually see her, the emotion on her face or the emotion in her eyes. So, you know, you have essentially coverage and he resists that. And then there's the idea that, well, you shoot her from behind so you don't even see the emotion on her face or in her eyes at all. It's all through just framing and in her body language and her posture and everything. It's like two elements that make it not something that would be, I think, traditional 
in, in the way that we think of it. My feeling is you do some thinking before you start a movie and, and don't do it uh, and don't get into insecure situations where you accumulate like a squirrel, the, the little nuts, and, and then you think you'll, you'll have a great film afterwards because you will find the gems in this whole pile of, of stuff. You won't. Of course, uh, I have evolved and I have uh, a long series of films behind me and I have gotten better at things and, and this is why I can be much more concentrated than before. Before I would collect much more footage. I'm not, uh, I, I do not want to speak to amateurs who keep rolling, rolling and don't even look it through the viewfinder. They just roll the camera somehow and I, I, I see that is a, a waste of, of energy, is a waste of um, of material and time. Be be very very precise and be focused. Keep saying even to my most experienced cameraman, he wants to do this and wants to do that. I said, we are not garbage collectors, we are filmmakers. Listen to me and shut the camera off. If there are any listeners out there that design t-shirts, please go ahead and email us because I've actually wanted to get Justin a, a t-shirt that says we are not garbage collectors for a while now. And I have yet to be able to find like a, a good quality one. Absolutely would love to get our hands on some we are not garbage collector t-shirts. Things can feel sort of more lively and more natural when you're not over planning. You know, then there is the other side, which is, you know, like planning is how you make films efficiently and quickly. And But I think what it comes down to is, and, and I've said this in the past, I think I said it with Bless Their Little Hearts, is I like the loose, rugged, rough around the edges, you know, not perfectly polished look and feel of a film. And I think that's where Herzog sort of falls, is he's in that side. He's not in the perfectly composed. And that's where the sort of documentary element that I've kind of talked about, and I think we'll talk about a little bit more in a little bit, kind of comes in. So, But there's something about what he said where he's like, I come in unprepared. I don't think that's accurate. He talks about he has this vision of the film in his head, the complete vision of the film. So maybe he doesn't storyboard. Maybe he doesn't necessarily communicate with his cinematographer like this is how we're going to shoot it ahead of time. I don't think that means you're coming in unprepared. You're just not prepared in the way that a lot of people say you should be. I would agree with that. And I believe to an extent, Aguirre, The Wrath of God, actually is proof that he did Hair. There's no way that this film can be made without preparation. Yeah, you find things naturally and organically. And, I, and I'm, again, also agree. I think that's fantastic when we can do it. But at the same time, you need to have some sense of what is this going to be? I look no further than the way that Aguirre, The Wrath of God opens and the shots across the mountains and the the people caravanning. Yeah, maybe you don't have a storyboard, but you have a sense of, okay, this is what this is going to look like. Clearly, there's other moments of that too. But sometimes I, uh, I voice my concern and sometimes I say, we are here on the set and the actors, and I have actors who are completely into the scene, absolutely there, and I'm with a slate, and I just want to film, 
and the cinematographer all of a sudden stops everything. Oh, please, this light here in the background, can you dim it down a little bit? And you lose all the magic. And I, at the end, I do not care whether one little piece of background needed to be a little bit more dimming. You see, you have to, you have to also uh, let them know there is a momentum. Catch the momentum of things. And from a certain point on, end of the story, end of lighting, just let's do it. So this is like always the really tough balancing act of a film set. I definitely see where you and Herzog kind of align on this one, because you're good living with some of those imperfections as long as the actors are there and as long as the emotion is there. And and I'm not trying to discredit that by any means, because at the end of the day, the thing that people will remember is hey, this is shot really well, this is lit really well, but there's no emotion in this scene and the actors have fallen flat. On the flip side of it, people, I think, are generally a little bit more forgiving of some of those lighting mistakes or overlit, underlit, if the performances are carrying those moments. I I think it needs to be a balance. It can be incredibly challenging, but at the end of the day, the thing that people are going to walk away thinking about is going to be the emotion, the performances, first and foremost. I think it's important to understand, I guess, his process into making a film and his process of photographing and visualizing that film. But you know, I think we want to go into maybe a little bit more detail in how this all relates to Aguirre. We've talked about the impact that making a film has on an environment, but I don't think that we really talk as much about the impact the environment has on on the crew and the situation. And as I was listening to the commentary track, I started making notes of just all of the peril and danger and issues that kind of came up during the making of Aguirre. I believe this is important to kind of cover and discuss because of the fact that we as filmmakers, most of us probably aren't venturing out to the rainforest to make something like this, but every film has a degree of danger or impact on the people involved. I'm going to start with the opening of Aguirre, and it's these amazing shots of this caravan crossing the mountains. There's like these really narrow paths through the mountains. It's got this amazing like backdrop of fog and cloud. That path, there is a significant danger of heights and falling, but there's also the added issue of altitude sickness because they were changing altitudes. Herzog in the commentary does reference that any number of people did get sick. They were also transporting animals across this. You can kind of see that in that opening. Justin, do you want me to just like continue down the list? Yeah, let's go through. So next up we have, there is this river that Aguirre and the rest of the explorers have to cross, like utilizing these rafts. And I think that this is an important, uh, before any of the cast actually got on the rafts or anything like that, Herzog himself actually trekked across the the rapids in one of these rafts just to make sure that it could be done and it was safe and everything. But there's still a significant danger there. Additionally, there's the swamp that the caravan is crossing when Inez is in this litter and 
she's about to tip over and you see Herzog's hand kind of come in and, you know, he even talks about how he sunk down in the swamp and he was like waist deep in, in all of the muck. You know, you have so many cast and crew trying to, to navigate through there. Herzog claims that there were no injuries due to the shooting of the film, allegedly. There were injuries, but that's primarily from fights and things that would occur outside and an injury because of Kinski. Well, there was one that's on camera and one that's at night. I think he meant no injuries because of the environment, right? Because of the environment, yeah. yeah. The river rose allegedly overnight, and it swept away the rafts that they had. Basically, it kind of changed some of the things that they were going to shoot. There's the scene where like, they referenced the rafts were swept away overnight and the river had risen. That was actually something that naturally occurred. Yeah, and worked into the film. Something that Herzog said is he specifically didn't want to try to shoot this on a soundstage. He said that there's no alternative for the authenticity of shooting this on location. And uh, I, I was told, yeah, why was he so stupid to choose such a difficult location? Because my answer, it was the only one uh, that I could find. And why did he not uh, shoot in a studio with a with digital effects, of course, they didn't exist. And still, today, I would still move a real boat over a real mountain because uh, I want audiences back in a position where you would know um, where you could trust your eyes again. You see everywhere in the films, you know, and six-year-old children know, ah, this is a digital effect. They even know how the digital, digital effects are being done. I wanted the audience back in the very, very basic notion, you can trust your eyes again. And films normally do not do that anymore. There's like one other moment. It's kind of like the, just this really like natural moment that they found. And it's towards the end of the film. There's these mice on board the raft that the remaining people are on. The mouse is like moving its babies. Again, it's just one of those things that you're not going to get that if you're shooting against a green screen. The point that I was trying to make and, and the reason why I provided the laundry list of the dangers, the injuries, the potential illnesses is to really highlight this fact that you have all of these things things kind of working against you or all of these dangers and pitfalls. But look at how much just occurs naturally that Herzog is able to capture. There's really not like anything in the way of like visual effects at the time. There's no CG. It's like none of that stuff. And it's all just occurring naturally right in front of us. And that is what makes this film work so well. People sometimes think uh, I'm the one who gives himself these crazy obstacles about filming in the Sahara Desert or filming in the jungle uh, just to prove himself. So it's what, what, stupid, what a stupid idea. Uh, I still try to, to find a place where uh, logistics are functioning, where I do have electricity. I don't have it all the time, but once you are settled for doing something, don't be afraid and do not shy away from uh, entering into real difficult terrain. 
And Herzog had expressed that like even now, if he was making this film now, he would want to do it for real. Or if he was making, I think he referenced like Fitzcarraldo, if he was making Fitzcarraldo now, he would want to actually move a boat over a mountain. Even now that we have CG, he would want to do it for real because it's always better when it's real. And and you, you see that. Kind of going off of what you said, I, I do think it's worth noting like I think there's very few films like this, but especially now, this is a film that just doesn't get made anymore for a variety of reasons. And I have to admit, I think it's good and bad. Good because I do think they got lucky. No one got more seriously hurt. They got lucky that no one died. But it's also bad because great films like this aren't being made anymore. And so the things that I am thinking of when I reference that is obviously just going to these dangerous locations and maybe you're doing your best to keep everybody as safe as possible, but you are still putting them in dangerous situations in which something can go wrong at any moment. If this film was being made today, it would be so CGI heavy. And we'll get into Kinski's performance, but another thing that just would not be allowed today is an actor like Kinski. He's an actor that would not be tolerated today. And again, I think that's good and bad. Obviously can't condone any behavior from Klaus Kinski, but he is a presence on screen. So the film was shot with one 35mm camera that Herzog acquired from a German film school. Herzog comments that shooting with one camera sort of forced to work in a more simple way and continuing to kind of add to that documentary feel and the authenticity of it. Can I ask a question to you surrounding that? Generally, we're shooting only using one camera ourselves. Part of that is just we don't have the budget or accessibility to the resources to shoot multicam. Do do you feel like, as a filmmaker, do you feel like that is truly a benefit, or do you think it hurts or hinders? I think it depends on the film you're making. I think something like Aguirre could potentially benefit from multiple cameras. If you're putting your actors in potentially dangerous situations, and if you are limited on money and time, doing the action once with multiple cameras would be beneficial. I think of them going through the rapids or something. There is danger there, so you don't want to keep doing it. But also, how do you reset after having done it? So you're going to do it once. And so if you want various angles and coverage of that, having multiple cameras is beneficial. And I know some people like a conversation in which you're shooting over the shoulders. Some people like shooting that with two cameras so you can have reactions and and I, I guess for continuity it helps especially if you have maybe overlapping dialogue that can be very beneficial um, and it obviously saves time you don't have to set up and uh, shoot the other direction I personally am not making films and probably will never make a film in which I feel like having multiple cameras is beneficial and also I would rather focus on composing lighting blocking and just put all of my attention on one camera and one setup at a time. But that's just, I guess, my preference as a filmmaker. If you're shooting multi-camera, are you able to get an actor to an emotional place and not have to worry about, cut, we're going to move for this shot or this coverage and then try to get them back there? Yeah. 
it's less of a concern with this film as an example because you're maybe shooting outside with natural light. But if you're shooting on a set or an interior, you have to light for multiple cameras, which isn't always as intuitive or easy as as just focusing on lighting for one camera. I think it's a combination of practicality and being efficient. And then there's also the um, the way those filmmakers prefer to work. I think it'd be interesting just to briefly talk about the perspective. And this kind of relates to Herzog and the crew being like right there, being in it with the actors. Yeah. You know, there's no overhead helicopter shots. Now, we have to acknowledge there are budgetary restrictions and stuff too, but I don't think that's what's controlling these decisions. You know, there's no helicopter shots. There's not a bunch of shots from the bank of the river shooting to the rafts. There's a few in certain moments, I think when they're going through the rapids, there's like one shot. For the most part, the camera isn't taking the perspective of someone on the outside looking in. The camera is taking the perspective of someone who's on this journey with them. In order to make that work, that means Herzog and you know the DP are right there. The sound person is right there. They're on the raft with them or they're on the raft next to them. And that's, again, what gives it this documentary feel. But it's also, I think, completely intentional how we take this perspective because it happens slowly. The opening sequence. We have sort of like two extreme wides as these people descend the mountain. And then we get a third shot of them walking down and the camera slowly begins to tilt down, revealing that this is a path that zigzags down and back up and that there's all of these people. And now there's, you know, people right next to the camera. And from like this point on, we're on the path with them. We're a member of this group and we're fully immersed in, in this journey. We're not someone sort of standing from the safe point with a long lens looking in. And so it, it's very intentional. I think the way it slowly reveals, we get these wide establishing shots and then we slowly reveal that we're actually right there on that path with them. And it keeps that sort of perspective until the end until the very last sort of shot with a gear a on the raft and we get that i guess that speedboat shot that sort of comes in fast and then circles around the raft and so like the first shot and the last shot have this outsider perspective but everything in the middle we're right there in it with them which i think it works perfect for the story but it also i think helps the actors because you have your director you know, there with you. One of the things that stood out for me is the amount of respect I believe that Herzog earned from his cast and crew. Being the first one to try and do things, being the one that, hey, I'm going to do this first and make sure that things are safe, even as something as little as uh, living on the rafts for that period of time with them, eating like the rest of the cast and crew, all of those things, if you're asking your cast and crew to do certain things, you should be willing to you know, lead by example. We've already talked about some of the elements that go into the journey and, and how that relates to 
the movement of the raft and how that movement is conveyed versus the disorienting sort of effect that's created sort of at the end, you know, a little bit more we can get into here, you know, right after the mutiny and they get back on the river and they're, they're traveling down the river again, there's movement of the raft and it's either like a left to right movement or a right to left movement. It's not actually consistent with direction, mm-hmm. which I maybe have been critical of screen direction in the past with some films that we've talked about. I think I definitely talked about it with Miami Connection. And this is a situation in which it doesn't matter because it's not about relationship of one element to another. This is about just one group moving. It doesn't really matter which direction they're moving. We see the movement and that's what's important. So we do cross the line. We get it where it's left to right and then maybe the next shot's right to left. But then there's this thing where the camera setups start to change in correspondence with the mental state of the crew, but also the river and how the river's behaving. We start out the film where they're going through rapids. And as we progress through the film, the river gets slower and slower until at the end, they basically come to a standstill where there's, you know, sort of no visible current and they've just come to this almost complete halt. But as we're on this trajectory and we see this change in the river, he begins to shoot it not from the side where we can see movement right to left or left to right, but straight on. Theoretically, the raft is moving towards us, but from that perspective, because they're moving so slow, you don't get a perspective of movement anymore. So it almost feels like the raft has now come to a complete stop. Like these characters are no longer headed anywhere. They're going nowhere. Their journey is futile and pointless. They're lost. And so that's just a change from shooting something essentially in profile where we have lateral movement to something straight on in which we have movement through depth space, but with the camera, it looks almost stationary. You know, we get to the end. Aguirre is, I guess, the only one left alive. And a couple things happen. I mean, we get to this part of the river where it it feels like it's come to this complete stop. We get shots where it looks like they're literally standing still. And then we also get these shots where the camera is circling around the raft, which is a, a very distinct sort of difference in filming style. And and Herzog has mentioned that the goal with this is to create this impression that they're moving in circles, moving in circles to give the impression that they're not going anywhere, that they're lost. It's a good example of camera placement affecting how you read the characters and also how sudden movement, the spiraling around the raft, can create another effect. We both had this as a scene or a shot that we wanted to sort of revisit here. And it's what I think maybe one of like the ultimate they've doomed themselves moments. And that's when they abandon the horse. And as they like kind of kick the horse off the raft and it swims to shore and the horse is like standing there almost like it wants to rejoin them. And the raft just slowly drifts away as the horse kind of like falls out of view. We think of the boat in the tree as like one of these really surreal moments. But I almost think like this horse scene is almost equally as surreal. The way it holds on that shot as the boat flows down the river and the horse standing there, you know, with the hood on its head and slowly gets smaller and smaller in the frame. And as the 
perspective changes. It sort of gets obscured by the, the branches of the trees. And the shot just lingers there. It does feel very sort of surreal to me and does create this sense of impending doom, not even thinking about you know, the consequences of doing that and how that's going to affect what happens next. Just in that moment, it feels like there's this impending doom. I think it's a turning point, really. It's subtle, but it's a moment where I feel like, you know, slowly throughout the journey, they're losing people. People are dying, their resources are depleted, and, and all these things feels like a moment where they finally sort of lost this last thing that they've brought with them. This last resource that they've brought with them is finally gone. They no longer have anything of their life or their culture remaining, and they certainly can't survive without these things. I thought it was interesting the way Herzog talks about this because he acknowledges that it's a moment is kind of only achievable through the medium of film. It's like this perfect combination of elements that only film can kind of achieve. And I totally agree because I have a hard time articulating what it makes me feel, but it certainly makes me feel things. I agree 100%. I also oddly found myself kind of emotional as that moment was happening. And it was hard to really identify why, because I, I think that there were a lot of emotions in that moment. It was, it was a little disturbing, but also I felt this sense of like hopelessness in that moment. So to your point about Herzog and his comments, I think that is like the power and the importance and the meaning of film is I don't think you get those feelings if that was just a still photograph or or a painting. You need what comes before and after. And the combination of movement yes. and sound or lack of sound. Another shot I found really interesting is, so this is after the people on the third raft, they were caught in that whirlpool and then they're later killed and found dead on the raft. And there's a two shot of Ursula and Carvajal walking towards camera and they're talking about, you know, we need to give these men a proper Christian burial. Mein Gebet von hier ist nicht genug, Bruder Carvajal. Ich möchte die Männer rüberschaffen für ein christliches Begräbnis. Du hast recht, mein Sohn sort of a two-shot as they walk towards camera, and then the camera pulls back a little bit and tilts down to reveal Aguirre has been sitting behind this stack of logs listening in. I think it's a perfect combination of blocking and camera movement, and then obviously Kinski's performance, to convey this one idea, this idea that Aguirre is scheming to take over. This is something that's slowly set up over the course of the film. There's little moments. There's the moment where he's like, Ursula is like, I'm still in charge. And Aguirre is like, is that so? And, and just little things like that, where we get a sense that at some point Aguirre is going to do something. But this is a single shot in which all of that is conveyed just through the visuals. And just this idea that he's listening in, that reveal and then that look on his face, I think it's just a perfect example of how visuals can relay information. And I think that this will transition us nicely into Kinski and partially his performance here, because with that shot, along with his mannerisms, his movement, you know, you can tell that he's this 
bad guy. One of the first times that we see Aguirre, he's beating one of the native slaves that's part of the caravan. So I think between those two elements, it tells us everything we need to know about him without actually having him speak a word. But then you compound that with the movement, the facial expressions, his costume. Herzog wanted him to kind of almost have like a hunchback element to him. And he's got these like straps around him that it's almost like they're trying to hold him together a little bit. We've talked a lot about like the cinematography. We've talked about the visuals, the locations. But I think that this is kind of an underrated element of this film. Not just Kinski, but what he's doing, how he's portrayed, how he moves, wardrobe. There's one shot which I learned from Klaus Kinski, the madman, but he was technically very, very intense and good. And he had a way to step in front of the camera uh, and somehow spiral into frame. And he would stand right next to, to, the, to the lens of the camera. He would be standing right next to it and then spiral in frame. But how did he do it? You have to look at my feet as well. He would be there and then he would swing his leg, uh, almost the other leg, 180 degrees, like this here, twisted. And then the entire body twists in front of the camera. So. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal effect because uh, as a spectator, the person who spirals in front of the camera looks like disoriented. Something you didn't mention, the, the physicality of like, you know, Herzog always mentions you're like a crab, walking like a crab. Yes. So he does have this very strange walk. And also mentions, oh, your your left hand, your dominant hand is shorter than your right. So he holds his sword under his armpit so he can reach it with his short left hand. Since we're kind of talking about Kinski, maybe it's worth talking about him and his performance and, and maybe just his relationship with Herzog overall. And the lady who owned the place had a heart for starving artists brought in Kinski. Kinski terrorized everyone. I mean unbelievably he demolished the place screamed and uh, at that time Kinski had just started with very small roles in theater and he had been in Hamlet but he never as Hamlet he never learned his text so after two and a half minutes uh, he fell silent because he couldn't remember any of the text uh, and instead of doing anything, he starts to insult the audience, screaming at the audience and throwing a candelabra with burning candles into the audience and, and, and insulting them. And at the end, he would roll himself into a carpet and stay in the carpet, would not emerge from it again. He would be rolled in the carpet until the curtain had to come down and everybody had to be sent back. So uh, 10 years later or so, when I uh, more than 10 years later, uh, when I did uh, Aguirre, I contacted him and I sent him the screenplay. And I ended up to, to work with him, but I had seen and met him as the only one in, in semi-privacy. And he was formidable. He was like a tornado. Everybody was afraid of the tornado. I was only marveling at him. Uh, very, very strange. And of course... Uh, he had become even worse uh, 
10 years, 12 years later, uh, more notorious, more volatile, more crazed. So I know that you won't care about this because Justin is the, I don't care about comic book movies, but in the spirit of every comic book movie having some sort of multiversal element at this point. I think that there's an alternate universe where Klaus Kinski plays the Joker in a Batman movie because there's just something so off and twisted and, you know, I I guess in a way kind of evil, I suppose, where he would do something mean and horrible and probably laugh about it. Yeah, you know what? If he played Joker, I'd be more interested. <laughs> Fair enough. I think he's an actor who chooses his go-to sort of expression of emotion is to get angry, to get loud, to yell, to throw fits, to be very over the top. And I think there's a lot of moments in Aguirre that proves that when he's silent, when he's still, that he is incredibly sort of creepy. I think of the moment, the two shot of him in the pan flute player, and he's just kind of standing there at moments he turns and watches him play. At other moments, he sort of turns and sort of looks off camera into the distance. This look on his face, this look in his eyes, you just feel like he could break into violence at any moment for no reason. I started earlier talking about the untraditional or unconventional nature in which things are done on this film. I referenced the monk and how he responds to Inez early in the film. And that's how I knew this was going to be something a little bit different and these characters would be a little bit something different than tradition. I think the scene with Kinski's Aguirre and the flute player was another one of those moments because you are used to seeing Aguirre and Kinski like having those violent moments. And it would have been very easy for this film to take this moment and have him assault the flute player. In a way, I'm happy it didn't do that. Now, that doesn't make him less creepy, less ominous, or anything like that. There's these moments, you, you know, you mentioned that he kind of looks like off-camera or past-camera, but there's also, like, moments where it's like he spikes the camera, and while traditionally actors shouldn't spike the camera, there is something unsettling to me, at least, about when he does it. There's a few moments where it does feel like he's just looking for a cut, but almost this, like, he's actually looking at you rather than spiking the camera in a, in a traditional way. The moment of that that I think of is the moment after the beheading and he has that monologue. If he wanted birds to drop dead out of the trees, they would do that. Aguirre has one of uh, the mutineers in his group beheaded. He um, uh, delivers a very strange speech about uh, mad power. If I, Aguirre, want the birds to drop dead from the trees, the birds will drop dead from the trees. And if anyone eats one grain of corn more than his ration, he will be trampled upon until we can paint the walls with him. And so, and he, uh, in first rehearsal, he yells it out and he screams it. And I said, Klaus, 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 hold it, hold it. This is wrong. It has to be completely subdued and reduced. Then it's dangerous. No, you pig, you don't understand anything about acting. And so, and then I provoked him. I said, uh, 
you look terrible when you scream like this. It's just stupid. And for one and a half hours, he would scream at me until he was exhausted. He, was, he had yelled himself empty. And then I picked up the slate and I said, Klaus, now we shoot. Uh, give me the first line. And I said, no, lower, lower. I should barely hear it. And he said, yeah, yeah, low. And he does it. And we shoot it once and that's it. One of the great moments in, in my uh, career as a filmmaker. But I also think this shows Herzog's intelligence as a filmmaker in terms of working with actors. I think a big part of getting the performance you want out of actors is just understanding who your actors are and how they respond to direction and him knowing that he can just provoke Kinski and then also, you know, exhaust him to the point that he, afterwards he can get what he's looking for, even though this is the first time he's worked with Kinski and he would go on to work with Kinski, I think four more times, that even at this point he understood how to, I guess, control him as much as possible, at least on camera. But again, also a right choice. I don't think that moment or a lot of moments would have worked as well if he was loud and angry. I think the moments where he's silent are some of the sort of the most haunting moments in the film. I said an actor like him would never be able to work, especially in America or Hollywood today. I think it's an interesting question of should he have been working then? You know, was was Herzog irresponsible to keep casting him? Because there are stories about crews being you know, sort of devastated when they found out that Kinski was going to be the lead in another Herzog film because no one wanted to deal with him. And from Herzog's perspective, it was like, what is on screen at the end is what matters. I think there's a conversation worth having there of, of whether it really is worth it, especially when he almost killed multiple people on the set of this film. You need to be cognizant of everybody else. You need to be cognizant of cast and crew and their safety. Admittedly, I look at this film and I look at the situation and I didn't list Kinski as one of the dangers when I was initially running down the list, but he is just another one. You don't necessarily expect a madman to wreak havoc on production either, but I can't there is no other actor that I could see playing that role. It's so tough. I mean, I agree with you, but at the same time, like I think cast and crew safety should be the most important thing. I don't think I normally would say film is not worth someone getting injured or killed over. I feel like I'm a hypocrite during this conversation, but it, it is one of these things where you literally can't picture anyone else in this role. And the film would be completely different if it was anyone else. We mentioned the impact that this had on one of our favorite filmmakers, Edward Yang. You referenced just how different Yang's films are from, from this. It's impossible to, from where we are and who we are, put ourselves into the shoes of one of the greatest filmmakers what do you think that Yang saw in this that reignited him to pursue film? He had attended film school and had dropped out, I guess, out of feeling like he didn't have the skills and that was based off of you know what they were teaching in film school, right? I would be curious to know what they were teaching, how they were teaching it. 
to know how that compares to my experience in film school. Obviously, I went to a much smaller school and, you know, and there's many years in between as well. If they were at all similar, I would imagine, you know, they're telling you there's a certain way to make films, almost like there's certain rules to filmmaking. And if those things just don't make sense to you or you can't envision yourself being a part of that, you're going to say, well, I guess this profession's not for me. And I imagine seeing Aguirre was like, wait a minute, this isn't what I was being taught. There are no rules. Things can be done different ways. Do it your own way. I don't know. Do you have any additional thoughts? I might even add, I think that there is something to be said about Aguirre being mostly who he was at the beginning, being who he is at the end. I do feel like in a lot of Yang's films, I don't see characters having like massively redemptive arcs. I can't think of one where anybody's like significantly like a different person or they've, you know, had this epiphany moment or anything. It's just the things that are happening and happening around them. And that was the power of Yang. And I think that's some of that is here. We also touched on the influence that this film has over other films. I think the most commonly referenced film really, I think, would be Apocalypse Now. Coppola's focus and just the lengths that he went through to make that film. Yeah, the boat in the tree is referenced in Apocalypse Now. And a big part of it is just going to this location and doing it and putting everything on the line. I think it's visible in the actual finished product, the finished film, but it's also sort of evident in the filmmaking process as well. Any other films that you would reference? Um, I think maybe William Freakin's Sorcerer. William Freakin being a, a director who's also not afraid to just put actors in situations and just kind of go for it. Uh, someone who has maybe been a little reckless at times himself. Um, I think that film, you know, you can see the kind of the fingerprints there. Obviously, that's a remake as well. But by updating that film, I see a lot of, I think, Aguirre in there. I stand by the Cannibal Holocaust and the Italian genre films, specifically the cannibal films. Cannibal Holocaust, I see in the film and the process. Everything else, I see it just in the process, meaning just a small crew going to one of these sort of exotic locations, whether it's the Philippines or, you know, Central or South America, and just using locals and shooting cheaply and quickly and then getting the hell out. I don't know. Is there anything else? I'm sure we could probably go down a, a list for just hours, but do you have any... Uh, supplemental material or items during your preparation that you would reference or bring up? I think the thing we referenced a lot is the commentary, which we both took from the Shout Factory Blu-ray. Uh, I think that's a commentary track that was recorded previously, so that is on other DVD sets. That disc also has a German commentary with subtitles. It's probably a lot of overlap, but I think the commentary is definitely worth listening to. A lot of the clips you'll hear during this episode are taken from Herzog's Masterclass, which I know um, I do feel somewhat guilty recommending that because it is, it's not necessarily cheap. 
but I strongly recommend it if you're compelled. You know, Herzog is is someone who is not afraid to talk about his movies. He doesn't necessarily maybe talk about them in the way people always want him to, similar to Lynch. I think all of his interviews are great. There's a lot out there. We focused our time sort of on the commentary and the masterclass for this episode. I do feel like this was a film where I was just expecting a little bit more as far as like supplemental or additional material. Just given the historical nature of the film and its importance, not just for the filmmakers that we reference, but definitely others. Bill Hader has a a fun little like three minute interview that is out on YouTube where he references having watched it on like TCM or something like that, but there's really not a lot out here and it's kind of actually disappointing to me. So hopefully we, we did it justice this week. Yeah, hopefully. Uh. (laughs) Between me and you, Joe, I don't know if we did. At the very least, I know I learned a lot of stuff just from watching the film and then watching again with commentary. I think we have some big news that we need to share with the audience. You know, although we're, I guess, now 12 episodes in, that we are still kind of figuring this out. Playing with format, yeah. And uh, trying to see what works and what doesn't work and hopefully drop what doesn't work. I don't know if anybody really has a strong opinion on this, but this is something we've been debating and just kind of discussing between Joe and myself for a while is this idea of do we recommend, do we not recommend, if we do recommend it, to whom would we recommend the film? And it just became, I think in my eyes, maybe pointless. It's a little reductive, I think. Even our quote-unquote trash cinema month, we still found things that we would recommend with both of the films. I think both of us would agree that the majority of films should be sought out, pursued, and, and viewed. And there's a reason why we're talking about the films that we talk about as well. It had been common for me to add a bunch of qualifiers. I recommend this film if you're into this thing or whatever. And I think I had mentioned to you, Joe, or maybe this was in an episode, I don't even know. Like as an example, if we had talked about maybe a Marvel film, most likely I would say I didn't enjoy the film that much. I didn't like the film, but I would recommend it to people who like Marvel films or like superhero movies or action movies or whatever. So it's like, if you're going to add qualifications, basically everything is going to get recommended to somebody and it just loses all value and all purpose. And I think our goal here is to, you know, every sort of conversation we have or every little segment or whatever we have is adding some sort of value. And I just felt like that wasn't adding any value at all. And we wanted to make a podcast about conversations and not just about reviews necessarily. And so I think if you listen to the whole episode, the whole conversation, you'll get a good sense of whether we liked or disliked the film. And if there's any, I guess, doubt about that, there is our letterboxed for star ratings. You know, we wanted to feel free to discuss any plot details we wanted. So we said, well, this is a spoiler podcast and we do warn you up front that this is a spoiler podcast. There may be some people who listen to the podcast who haven't seen the film. You know, it's also possible people have seen the film already, and that's why they're listening to the podcast. 
And if you've already seen the film, does it matter if we recommend it or not? You know, it's like you've already spent the time to watch the film. So it's like we're recommending a film to someone who's theoretically already spent the time slash money to to watch it. Another reason why it just feels maybe not helpful. I just want to highlight a an important point here. You touched on it, but I think it's incredibly valid when it comes to this discussion as well. And every film is subjective. What my taste is, Justin may not align with. I know there are things that Justin does like that I'm not a fan of. That doesn't mean that the film is bad, and it doesn't mean that that film shouldn't be watched or pursued. The content we're providing hopefully gives you an understanding of maybe this film is or is not for me. It lasted 11 episodes. We have officially eulogized the would we recommend and to who segment of Scene by Scene. Justin, this was your choice. I'm going to have you talk about what you took away from this film. Okay, takeaways as a filmmaker. I think it's worth understanding what you want to accomplish with a film, and then based off of that information, decide what preparation work is important to you. Using Aguirre as an example, if you want something that is spontaneous, if you want something that is, in Herzog's words, sort of lively and full of life, both in terms of its cinematography and its performances, maybe you don't want to storyboard. Maybe you don't want to over-rehearse with the actors. These are things that maybe can be better because you, you did them, or maybe they can get a little bit lifeless or flat or uh, maybe because you're so focused on them, you're missing opportunities that present themselves on set. On the flip side, I mean, if you are trying to make a film that is very precise in its visuals, in that case, maybe your preparation work should include storyboards. I think it comes down to what you're trying to accomplish, that being the deciding factor on what you spend your time on in pre-production and you know using that time wisely and focusing on what you think is important what you value in films and what you're hoping to accomplish with your film the last thing i think to be a leader on set a leader of a film someone that your cast and your crew are going to follow i think it is trust that has to be earned i think you need to be in it right there with your cast Herzog always says like he's the guinea pig. He's the one who swam across the river. He's the one who went, you know, down the river in the raft first. He's trying these things first. Essentially it's, you know, don't ask anything of your actors or whatever that you wouldn't do yourself. I think that's important. I think you can kind of take that away from his working methods. Even if you're never going to make a film of this caliber of the style, you can sort of apply that to smaller scale situations. And the last thing is make your catastrophes part of your story. The example here is their river flooded overnight. They lost rafts. They lost part of their set. Use that. Make that part of your story. I mean, we've talked about this in the past with actors. Bring your actors' experiences to the film. Talked about it with the terrorizers, with uh, Rebels of the Neon God. This is an example of things that happen to the production can make their way into the film. So it's like if it's raining, you're supposed to shoot a scene outside. And if it's raining, 
do you reschedule the shoot or do you you shoot anyway and you incorporate the rain into the scene and maybe by incorporating it into the scene something more interesting will come out of it do you have any takeaways as a fan of this movie a fan of movies or as a filmmaker don't be afraid to be unconventional with your approach because a lot of the extras a lot of the folks that are in agire they were just people that he found and I think that there's this constant kind of crippling nature of filmmakers of, you know, I got to find the right person. I got to cast wherever or whoever. And that's what's most important. And I think that we all can be guilty of this because you do want the, the best actors. And clearly Kinski, I think, was the best actor for this. But you look at some of those supporting roles, I don't think that there's necessarily a bad performance. So just make use of who and, and what's available to you. I know that sounds cliche, but it's not wrong either. If you really want to make a film, you should not say, ah, I want to be a filmmaker. Be specific. I want to make this very project. So if uh, you just want to have it for, yeah, it's chic and it's, it's cool to be a filmmaker. No, it's not cool. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a series of humiliations. It's a, a series of banalities every single day on, on, a, sh on a shoot. The restrictions sometimes are enormous and you have, to, you have to deal with it. Don't complain, you just do it quickly. Deal with it and, and get away with film. That's what, what we are, we are thieves. We are thieves, we, we get away with loot from, from the most beautiful or the most scary or the most spectacular places that you can ever find. That's what we have to do. Bank robbers, just hit and run. Okay, that's the scene. I love these moments. Uh, how beautiful. That wraps up Agiri the Wrath of God, Justin's pick. So for our next episode, I am going to, and I'm probably going to regret this. This is a film that I had watched years and years ago, and I was actually banned from watching it ever again. But... I'm older, I'm in a better place. We're gonna see how this one does, but we're going to do Charlie Kaufman's directorial debut, Synecdoche, New York. I have never seen this. Yes. Well, you know that because this is one of these films that you've been trying to get me to watch for a long time. And I've, um, I guess really that's what this podcast was made for, <laughs> is to force me to watch things that <laughs> I was never gonna that watch. That you watch. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Definitely want to thank our listeners for joining us for our discussion of Agiri, the Wrath of God. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, and we would love if you did this, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share it with somebody who might enjoy it. If you want to let us know whether you agree or disagree with our opinions on the film, or if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can email us at scenebyscenepodcast at gmail.com. If 
you'd like to follow us on Letterboxd, I can be found at letterboxd.com slash Justin Johnson. Joe can be found at letterboxd.com slash jrlefebvre83. Links will be in the description. And join us next time for our discussion of Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York. Well, you don't have to look at the set anymore. I mean, the movie's over. Your movie was over. That's what you said. There's nothing going on uh, in movies right now. Great movie, huh? It's so refreshing to see something like this after all these cop movies. Have you seen a lot of movies here? What are you so crazy about movies for? Obviously, they don't watch enough movies. That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Do you have any experience in motion pictures? Quite a bit of experience. I'm uh, an active renter at Blockbuster. I love the fact that you did all this work. I think it will help you later, but not on this movie. Sorry, can we cut? Still rolling. You know, oh. No, not still rolling. Cut, 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 cut. Cut! And cut! That great work, everybody. That's a wrap.